A reading from the book of Deuteronomy. This entire commandment that I command you today, you must diligently observe, so that you may live and increase and go and occupy the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you, these 40 years in the wilderness, in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The clothes on your back did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a parent disciplines a child, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Therefore keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. And now a reading from the first letter to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, provided it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. If you put these instructions before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of the faith and the sound teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with profane myths and old wives' tales. Train yourself in godliness, for while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and struggle, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. These are the things you must insist on and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhorting, to teaching, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Put these things into practice. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. 
Continue in these things, for in doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word of the Lord. Many of us were here last week as we joined together in one unified worship service at 10 o'clock. There was hardly any room up front for anybody because we had so many musicians, hardly any room out there, but it was a great celebration to begin our program year together. If you were not here, I'm sorry you missed out on a great time. Plan to be here next year. If you were here, you also recall that last week we began a new series of sermonic messages for this fall, and I want to introduce that series again in a way to all of you so that those who were not here last week and didn't listen to the podcast last week, which you're supposed to do, by the way, if you didn't make it to church, at any rate, so that we're all on the same page together. And I want to begin this way. Last spring, our pastors and other ministry leaders and elders began to pray about the different things going on in the life of the church, and we began to sense that there was a need for us to focus on a particular topic this fall. It is the topic of how it is that you and I get along with each other. In our world today, as in the world in many periods of history, it seems to be very, very difficult for us to get along with God and to get along with ourselves and also to get along with each other. Now, I'm happy that many of the couples sitting here today have not started looking at each other as I'm talking about the problem of getting along. That's a good sign, even for those newly married. We're talking about the problem of getting along with each other, both getting along with those whom we know, whom we love, whom we want to be part of their lives, but, but also getting along with the whole human community, the whole family. I happen to believe that when things are tougher than usual, when things are more confusing or more upsetting than usual, that it's very important for us to go back to the fundamental things, to the foundational things. And so we are doing that as people of faith. People who hope and believe that in the practice of our religion and in the teachings of our Savior, there are to be found clues or wisdom or guidance or inspiration about how it is that we deal with the problem of getting along with each other, and indeed we do find those things. And so last week we talked about one of the central elements of our faith that is also expressed in one of the central pieces of this place where we gather to think about our faith and to sing about our faith and to remember our faith. The place or the thing that we looked at most specifically was this table, the communion table. The place where we remember that Jesus sat with the first 12 folks he began to work with in this world and, and said to them, I am giving myself for your sake, so that you will give yourselves for others' sake, 
so that we will understand that God gives himself to us and for us and always is with us. That's one of the central things we believe about reality. We believe as well that Jesus invited not just the first 12, but that Jesus invites everyone with zero exceptions to come to him and to come into fellowship with him and with each other so that we might begin to learn again who we are and how we are meant to live in the world. This entire building in which we sit is a physical expression of biblical and theological and spiritual truth. And in a way, it begins at this table. But the table's not the only thing that's here. There are other things here that remind us of these important truths. And the one I want us to focus on today is the pulpit. Now, last week, I asked all of you to think about tables around which you might have gathered. And many of you, after church and throughout the week, told me about important tables in your life. Maybe it was your grandma or your grandpa's table and it was passed down to your parents and then it was passed down to you and you intend to pass it down to your children. Whatever it was, it was easy for all of us to sit there and think about at least one table where we have sat and where we have enjoyed friendship and fellowship with other folks. I'll bet some of you have already sat at at least one table today. Is that right? Now, at 9 o'clock, folks are excused for not having had their breakfast yet, but you guys should have had your breakfast already, right? Have you sat at a table today? It's easy to think about the table, but it's not as easy necessarily to think about the pulpit because not everybody in this room has ever actually had the terrifying privilege it is to stand in a pulpit. I'm curious, though. Out of about 125 folks at the 8 o'clock service, eight folks had said that they had actually preached from a pulpit before. How many of you have preached before? I'm not talking about what you say to your wife every day. I'm, I'm, no, sorry. <laughs> right? Raise your hands again. How many of you have preached? Yeah, that is so cool. That is so cool. You guys get to raise your hands. It's okay. <laughs> right? Let me tell you about some pulpits, right? Obviously, I'm interested in pulpits. My own home church, which didn't even have as many people as are sitting behind me in it, my home church had a pulpit for the first few years of my life, but then they decided to redo the church, and they asked my dad to build all the new liturgical furniture. And so when I was about 10 years old or so, he did that, and the pulpit that my dad built is still in that church now 52 years later. It's a very special pulpit to me. It's not the only pulpit that I've had experience with, though. I went off to college and started going to the church that Helen grew up in, a big, beautiful downtown Presbyterian cathedral with incredible stained glass and a big honking pipe organ and this most impressive place, and, and the pulpit there was just absolutely phenomenal. Now, I know some of you guys, you know, you say, wow, I'd like to own this car, or some of you say, you know, I'd like to own the latest fashion and clothing, or so. To me, to me, I think about the pulpits that I would like to have. <laughs> now, I love this one. I got the chance to design this one, therefore I can see over it to see you. That's another story. <clears throat> But the pulpit in Albuquerque was a very typical and traditional Presbyterian pulpit. It was high and lifted up. 
so that everybody could see and hear the preacher. And so that the preacher could see everyone else. And even those of you sitting in the very back rows, I can see you. That high and lifted up pulpit. Now, if you travel around in other parts of the world, especially going into some of the beautiful cathedrals that are in Europe, you will find incredibly ornate, beautiful pulpits. Most of those pulpits have a stairway because you actually have to climb several feet up to get into them. And the stairway usually is protected by a locked door. And that breaks my heart. Because the only way I really know what a church feels like is to get up into the pulpit. And I'm always trying to get up into the pulpit. A few years ago, touring around with some of this choir, I learned that when singers go into a place, they walk over into a corner somewhere and they go, Am I wrong? No, I'm not wrong. Singers are testing the acoustics of the place because the only way a singer knows what a church is like is to sing in it. Organists are also sometimes locked out of the organ, aren't you? What a great travesty that is. But Susie got to play an organ in a beautiful church. Wasn't it where Faure wrote some of his music? You just sang one of his pieces, right? Susie got to just nail it with a Vidor Toccata in Faure's church. They didn't let you play the big organ. You got to play the little organ, but you made it sound like a big organ. That's the way organists try out churches. The way preachers try out churches is to get up into the pulpit because it's such an important place. I will say that there was one smaller town in France where the door to the pulpit was locked, but it also wasn't latched very well, which was a sign from on high that God wanted me to crawl up into that pulpit. And there are a handful of folks behind me here who were in the church. There was a few of singers, and there were also some other tourists. But I walked up into the pulpit, probably three, four, five hundred year old wooden structure, and it was kind of creaky, and I stood up and I did what preachers must do when they stand up in a pulpit, and that is to speak. And so I said, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. And one of the tourists in the church turned around and said, Shh. <laughs> Don't anybody dare try that here. <laughs> I love elevated, beautiful pulpits. Not because I'm a preacher, but because they speak of the importance of the Word of God. If you walk into any Presbyterian church worth its salt, you will find yourself sitting under the Word of God that is read, that is proclaimed. Because that's one of the fundamental things we know from God about how it is that we can have a successful relationship with Him and with ourselves and with each other.
in the year 1290 or so before Jesus was born, Moses went to the Pharaoh of Egypt and said that God has said that you are to let my people go. Pharaoh let the people go. And the people under Moses' leadership wandered around in the wilderness for around 40 years or so. And during that time, they forgot who God was. And God continually brought them back. God revealed himself to them by giving them his word, the first ten words that we call commandments. Eventually, the first generation of those who had escaped slavery in Egypt died. And a new generation was born that God judged were able and ready to go into the promised land. Moses had not yet died. He was very old. But as the people are gathered together, looking to the west over the Jordan River and the great valley that separates that region from the west. They looked over into Canaan, and Moses sat the people down and preached a sermon to them. That's what we have in the book of Deuteronomy. In that sermon, Moses said, do you remember how God led us out of slavery, how he rescued us from bondage, how he saved us from starvation, how he saved us from thirst, how he revealed everything that we need to know about him and about each other, how he even fed us with manna. But then Moses said, you know, it really wasn't so much about the physical sustenance of your bodies. It was about the spiritual sustenance of your souls. God gave the manna, Moses said. Go back to that passage and read it. In order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You and I live not because of bread and water or even oxygen. You and I live by the Word of God, the Word that created us, the Word that sustains us, the Word that tells us who we are, about who we are meant to be, and the Word, especially for us to remember today, about how we can get along with each other. We live by the word of God. We live by the truth, not lies. We live by reality, not dreams. We live by knowing who it is that made and sustains and redeems all things. What Israel learned over its many hundreds of years of history is that it thrived, it succeeded, it lived when it lived according to the truth of the Word of God. When it forgot, when it purposely turned its back, things did not go so well. And so it was that about 1,250 years later, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And we got to meet the Word in person. We got to see the word in action. 
Some years later, the people of God were trying to remember this word. He had gone now. He had left the scene. And there were old preachers like Paul who were trying to teach the people about the word and teach the people about the word. And old Paul was teaching young Timothy. Now, I used to identify a lot with Timothy because about 31 years ago, when I was 31 years old, I became the pastor of a church and I got to preach every Sunday. And most of the people who walked out of church would pat me on the head and say, you're younger than my grandchildren. But I would remember what Paul had said to Timothy, do not let people despise your youth. Now I identify more with Paul for some reason. <laughs> Whatever that's about. Paul is teaching Timothy how to be a pastor of a church, someone who tells the truth about God. And he says, you know, Timothy, in your church, there are going to be deceitful spirits. There are going to be hypocrites and liars. And it wasn't just Timothy's churches. And it wasn't just churches. It was everywhere. Do we not live in a world that is plagued with deceit and hypocrisy and lies? Do we not live in a world that needs to know the truth? If you do not know the truth about a loving, forgiving, renewing, redeeming God, you're in pretty sad shape. Amen. If you do not know the truth about how God made the world to be. And if you do not live by that truth, you're in pretty sad shape. And so there really is nothing more important than always remembering, studying, learning, being corrected by, being inspired by the Word of God. That's why Presbyterians make the sermon the longest thing in a church service. I'll admit sometimes we might stretch it a little bit too long. I know you hired a short preacher because you like short sermons. <laughs> but there's nothing more important than knowing the Word of God. Why? Why? Well, think about it. Think about Adam and Eve. God said, I'm putting you in the garden. Have a great time. And the devil came along and said, God lied to you. You can be like him. Which version of the news did Adam and Eve choose to believe? We love to lie, all of us. Lying is expedient. Lying helps us get our own way. Lying helps us feel like we're stronger and more powerful and better than others. Lying has all kinds of useful purposes in the world. Hiding the truth has all kinds of things to commend it, except that it kills us, doesn't it? And so Christian people are people who put themselves under the Word of God because we know that otherwise we die. That is a lesson that 
people who follow Jesus must learn, and is a lesson that Jesus teaches because it actually applies to everybody whether they've ever even heard of Jesus or not. I contend that societies thrive and function when they remember the best information, when they remember the truest truths about who they are and what they are meant to be. It's the reason that we in this country enshrine the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights so that we remember who we are. It's the reason that we go back and celebrate the writing of the Magna Carta it's the reason that we uphold the telling and learning and living of the truth above all things. Because it is that truth that sets us free and that truth by which we live. There's an old saying that the first casualty of war is what? The truth. You might say that we're in a war with the devil. We're in a war with that part of ourselves that wants to be God. And in that war, we so readily, so easily will listen to lies. But then we have the great gift of Scripture, the great gift of the truth of God under which we sit. Let us never forsake the public reading of Scripture. Let us never forsake the offering of our time and attention to listen to folks who try to explain what the Scriptures are about. Let us never forget that the Word of God in the Savior Jesus Christ has lived among us full of grace and truth. Let us call the world to account and ourselves to account for the lies that we live and propagate and teach, and let us open ourselves always to God to sit under His Word and find the life that He offers us. Amen.